Welcome to Eternal Life. Seven questions that every intelligent skeptic should ask about Jesus of Nazareth. This is a special free podcast series that is created for anyone who genuinely seeks truth, but who sometimes struggles to believe in some of the miraculous and supernatural elements of the Christian faith. This is a safe place where you can belong without having to believe, as we aim to objectively explore the logical, historical, and academic facts and circumstances that surround the life of Jesus, whom many call Christ. My name is Rory Vaden, and I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization. I'm actually a researcher, a New York Times bestselling author, and a Hall of Fame business speaker who has spent a lifetime wrestling with these very questions in my own personal life. I've simply decided to share my findings here so that if I should die before my kids become old enough to understand this, that my two young sons would have documentation for the rational reasons why daddy has come to believe in miracles, a resurrection, heaven, and the story of Jesus as Messiah. I'm glad you're here. Let's explore the evidence. Well, we have been wrestling with and looking at the questions that intelligent skeptics should ask themselves about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, to really try to understand is there evidence that supports any of this narrative? Are there things that we can look to that are documentations and logical and rational reasons to believe why some of these seemingly irrational elements or parts of the Jesus story are actually true? And in question one, we started off by just asking, what is your strategy for overcoming death? And is it worth even taking the time to explore this? And if you're still here by now, then you've probably at least listened to that one and decided, yeah, this is at least worth looking into, at least worth spending a few hours getting into. So then in question two, we said, well, how do we even know that Jesus was a real person? Like, if we're going to question everything, let's question everything. And let's go back to the very root assumption of like, was he even real? And if so, how do we know? Like, is it you know, just a fable? Like, how do we know this isn't a fable that the man even walked the earth? And so we've looked at the evidence for that, which is pretty overwhelming. And you'd be, even by skeptical academics, you would have a hard time making the case that Jesus didn't walk the earth. So then in question three, we looked at and we said, well, all right. So he walked the earth, granted, but how do we know he wasn't just a good guy? I mean, the easiest explanation for the life of Jesus then is to say, well, he's a teacher. He's like any other teacher. I mean, Rory Vaden, myself, I'm an author. I'm a teacher. I, you know, I, I reach some number of people through my speaking and my blog and my podcasts and social media. And people could could look at my life and go, well, you know, Rory's a teacher and there's all these pastors who teach and there's other teachers. And yet what we just finished looking at was the evidence and the documentation of why that's not really a rational thought, because Jesus didn't say he was a teacher. Like, I am a teacher. Rory Vaden is an author, a speaker, a teacher. I try to share principles with the world that have been helpful to me and my journey, specifically in business, not typically in the, the faith or spiritual realm. But I'm very clear that I am not a deity, right? I am not the son of God. I am not that. 
and I'm super clear about that. Well, Jesus was super clear that he was that. He said that directly, openly, clearly, unapologetically, which means he either is that or he's a deranged lunatic liar. There's no in-between. You don't get to say, I am a God or I am the son of God or I am a deity and have that not be true and still get to be a good person, right? Like you're either a liar or you're a lunatic, meaning you believe something that is true, which isn't really true, or it is actually true. So that's where we are now. And that is how myself on my journey, which is what this is, right? I'm just basically recounting the steps for you here in this series that I have gone through myself over years and years and years and and walking you through kind of the process that I've followed to look at this and specifically one day so that my sons, Jasper and Liam, can at least understand the path that I have gone down to really challenge these assumptions. And so that brings us here to question four, which is now it starts to get real, right? Now we go, okay, all right. So we've come to the place, if you're following to this point to say, Jesus was real. And now we're forced to reconcile with, is he a God? Like, is he a deity or is he crazy? And we know if if he's crazy, all we have to prove is that he's not God, that there's no evidence for that. And then we go, great. Well, then he's a crazy person because he said directly himself, as we just demonstrated in the last lesson, that I am God and you know, I am one with the father and, you know, all of these things we just looked at. So then you go, all right, well, the the natural choice would be to say he's crazy. He's lunatic. And as, as I mentioned, I actually can accept that from a rational person, right? When somebody comes to me and they say, oh my gosh, Rory, like you believe in, in all this Jesus stuff? Like the guy's crazy. He's a lunatic. I actually can accept that as an academic myself, or I don't know if that's the right term, but as someone who I would consider as intelligent and data-driven and scientifically measured and and uh, you know into objective, provable truth, much more than I can somebody going, no, ah, I, th- I think he, you know, he was probably a good guy. That one doesn't make sense. So then, what evidence is there that he actually was a deity? Right. So if the default is to go, anyone who says, I mean, if I said to you right now and I said, look, look, I'm the jam, right? I'm a deity. I am God or I am related to God. Or, you know, if, if I said that to you, the default would be Rory's insane. He's crazy. He's got to go to the crazy house. That's what the default thought would be, unless I could somehow demonstrate that there was substance behind it. Now, in my case, I can't prove that to me. I'm not making those claims about me. I'm very clear that I'm like an ordinary, normal human sinner. And like I have all the natural human tendencies and I do not have supernatural powers. That's me. But Jesus said he did. So then we have to go, all right, so what evidence is there then? And that's what question number four here is all about. What proof is there that Jesus is the son of God, meaning that he's not a man, that he actually is something more than a man, that he actually possibly or potentially is a deity. And that's what we're going to look at here in question four. And this is where I say it gets real because we have to look at some supernatural things, 
this becomes a supernatural discussion. That's the whole point is to go, if Jesus isn't supernatural, then he's crazy. Great. Conversation is over. But if Jesus is a God, then we have to go, what logical evidence is there that supports that he had supernatural powers? And that's where it it starts to kind of feel a little bit dicey, right? Because you're going, we're having to enter into a discussion. Well, half the discussion here is about supernatural. Half the discussion is about history, actually. So here's what we're going to look at. I'm going to share with you the two best reasons why someone might actually come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is a deity, that Jesus is more than a man, right? That there was something starkly different and starkly unique about him and his life and his time on earth that makes him different from the billions and billions of other humans that have walked the earth. I'm going to lay out the two reasons why you might actually come to that conclusion versus the conclusion that he's a crazy maniac. These are things that if you do believe that he's a crazy person and that is the path you take, that's fine. That's your prerogative, of course. But if that's the path you take, then you must reconcile these two things for yourself. So that's why we're going to talk about these. So I, when, I think these are the two strongest reasons why someone might believe that Jesus was of the divine, that he was markedly different from the rest of us. Here's what the two reasons are. First are the miracles that he performed. We have to like delve a little bit into the supernatural because in order for him to be God, he has to have some demonstration of the supernatural. So we have to like go there a little bit and we have to go, okay, well, what did he do that was supernatural? And is there any logical or rational evidence for us unsupernatural people to believe in some of those supernatural things that he did, right? So we kind of have to cross over this line between, you know, a normal person like me, a human, a regular human, and this other human who's claiming to be something more than human, we have to look at that. So we have to look at the miracles that he performed or he allegedly performed. So we're going to look at that. But then the other reason, the other big reason why I think someone might come to the conclusion that Jesus was more than a man is because of the prophecies he fulfilled the prophecies he fulfilled, meaning just predictions, right? When you hear prophecy, there's something about that word that makes us feel like, ooh, it's supernatural. And it's like, it's like very woo-woo, like it's like a tarot card reading or something where it's like, oh, you know, I magically see into your future. That's not quite what we mean here by prophecy. Prophecy is a documented written prediction of something that happened or was going to happen that everybody agrees and historians and lots of people agree like this was written way earlier and there's not much debate on whether or not it was written. It's very clear, you know, th there's recovered manuscripts that, that it was written. And then we go, did his life and his death and his birth and the, the circumstances around him 
did they fulfill what was written, historically speaking? When I say that non-believers don't struggle as much from a lack of faith, they they struggle from a lack of research. This is where that kind of comes to a head because looking at the supernatural honestly requires a, a little bit of faith, potentially. So we'll look at that because it's supernatural. It's it's unusual. It's abnormal. It's extraordinary. So there is a faith component of this that we have to look at and that you're ultimately going to have to reconcile for yourself one way or the other. But then there's a, a research aspect. There's a there's a historical aspect. There's a black and white documentation aspect that we just have to look at and go, let's be clear on what was said. And then the only part you have to reconcile is, did the historical man Jesus fulfill those things? And if he did, that sort of points to that the prediction was true, which is what people call prophecy, right? So there's these predictions that were written. We all agree that they were written. There's You can't really argue that they weren't written. They were definitely written, right? Jewish people studied these. This is the Old Testament, okay? So we'll talk about that in a second. So two top reasons why someone, a sane person like myself, I can <laughs> I consider myself sane, right? For the most part on most days. So why would a, not only a sane person, but an intelligent skeptic, somebody who goes, yeah, I don't just automatically buy in you know, to the presence of God or the spirit of God, or even if I do, I still want to look at the, you know, the evidence of this. Two reasons why someone like that might actually choose in their logical, rational, historical, data-driven, you know, evidence-based mind, why Jesus is the son of God. One is the miracles he performed and two is the prophecies he fulfilled. So let's look at number one, okay? The reason, number one, are the miracles that Jesus performed. Now, again, before we get into this, just a little bit of a supernatural disclaimer here. Because as an intelligent skeptic, if you are like me, entering into this conversation might be a little bit difficult. It was difficult for me because I have a hard time believing in the supernatural. Meaning, one of the things that I came to realize about myself on this journey is as a logical, rational person, I struggle to believe in things that I've never seen, right? The idea that Jesus walked on water as a rational person is hard for me to believe because I go, I've never walked on water. I've never seen anyone else walk on water. Therefore, from what I've understood about the scientific properties of water, the practical scientific elements of chemistry and how molecules bind together and and what amount of weight they can support i struggle to believe on this on on the surface you know no pun intended at the surface level that somebody could actually walk on water right i struggle with that so when we enter into the supernatural i want to let you know it's okay to struggle with that even people who are believers, which I am, right? I don't mean to hide that from you, right? I'm walking you through my journey here of how I came to believe, but I just don't want to shove it down your throat, right? I'm just laying out the evidence and you know, hopefully you'll sort of choose for yourself one way or the other, because it doesn't honestly make that much of a difference to me whether or not, you know, which conclusion you come to. 
even as a believer, I go, people walking on water, that's hard for me to believe. I've, I've never seen that. I don't understand that. I don't see how that's possible. Well, in order for someone to be supernatural, they would have to do supernatural things. So the other part of this, and the, here's part of what helped my natural skepticism. Here's a part of how I was able to move through my natural skepticism was to realize that just because I've never seen something doesn't mean it hasn't happened, right? Just because I've never seen something doesn't mean it hasn't happened. In fact, as I wrestled with that idea, it became very obvious to me, there's lots of things I've never seen, right? That I believe happened or that I believe are real. Right. There's a lot of things that I've not personally experienced, but that I do believe are real, that I do believe have happened. So I'm going to let me walk you through a couple of them. Let's look at the non man made ones first. So a great example is dinosaurs. I've never seen dinosaurs, but I believe that dinosaurs existed. I believe there is enough scientific, rational, logical evidence that dinosaurs are real and that dinosaurs walked the earth. I believe both in the Bible and Jesus and the creation story and that dinosaurs existed. That's actually been a whole separate thing I've had to reconcile for myself because I'm going, man, I believe in dinosaurs and I believe in the things I'm walking you through. That's a separate series for a separate day. But I do believe in dinosaurs. I believe the evidence is overwhelming that dinosaurs existed. I've never seen a dinosaur. But I believe it. So I believe in that. I've also never seen a tsunami. I've never seen a tsunami wave. But I believe that tsunamis exist, that they have happened historically. There's evidence of, and in recent years, since photography and videography has been around, we have we have photos of these. So I go, I, I believe that they happen, even though I've never seen one. And you might say, well, there's pictures of them. Well, yeah, there, there are pictures of them, but pictures are evidence. In the time of Jesus, pictures didn't exist. There was not photography. There wasn't video. There wasn't social media. So is it a little bit easier to believe in some of this stuff today? Well, yeah, because there's pictures of it. And you go, well, but what about dinosaurs? There's not pictures of dinosaurs. There's not video of dinosaurs. There's not social media of dinosaurs. There's not. Now, People have recreated pictures of dinosaurs, just like they've recreated pictures of Jesus, just like they've recreated pictures of the Last Supper, just like they've recreated pictures of a crucifixion. So there are recreations of the thing, but nobody has a picture of a dinosaur. Like, where is the picture of a real dinosaur? There isn't one, right? So we have skeletons and we have bones, right? And we've recreated those. So there's evidence. So I believe in tsunamis. I've never seen a volcano. Personally, I believe that volcanoes are real. The other thing is the solar system, like other planets. I've never personally been to outer space, looked with my own eyes, and seen that the Earth is round. I believe the Earth is round. I believe there's overwhelming evidence for that. I've seen globes. I've seen alleged pictures of a solar system. I've seen other planets. I've seen pictures of Saturn that has rings, right? I've never seen it with my own eyes, though. At some level, I am trusting in the evidence, even though I've not seen it with my own eyes, right? I'm trusting 
in the documentation of, even though I've not seen it in my own eyes. And those are non-man-made things. There's also man-made things that I've never seen that I very much believe in. Wars. I've never personally witnessed or experienced war. Now, I was alive, you know, during Desert Storm, right, in the 90s. You know, I was alive. I was in college during 9-11, the war in Iraq. And like, I've seen pictures of it. I've seen video of it. I believe that it's real, but I've never witnessed it with my own eyes. Holocaust and genocide, right? Like Holocaust, I've never seen that, but I believe that it happened. I believe that there's, there's documentation of it. There's evidence of it. I've never seen sex trafficking with my own eyes, but I believe that it is real. I believe that it is evil. I believe that it exists. I believe that it happens, right? So just because I've never seen something doesn't mean it can't exist or it couldn't have happened. So why do I believe in those things? Because there's evidence, right? Because other people saw it. Other people have seen war. Other people have seen tsunamis. Other people have lived through volcanoes. Astronauts have explored the solar system, right? Ultimately, I'm believing a picture that someone took with a camera in outer space, right? Or that a satellite took. I believe that's actually true. I don't believe that, you know, there's conspiracy that's lying that we don't live in a solar system. I believe that we do live in a solar system. And I believe that, you know, Earth is round and that Saturn has rings. I believe those things, right? Call me crazy, even though I've never seen them. So I believe that there is evidence of them. I believe that other people have seen them, even though I haven't seen them. So, which is exactly what the gospels are, right? And that's part of what you got to like realize with your brain is that it's not a fictional story, right? We're not reading Fifty Shades of Grey or Harry Potter or The Hunger Games. Those are fictional stories that are made up. We're reading about history, people documenting what they saw. It was the social media of the day. All they had was the written word, right? They couldn't take a picture and post it on Instagram. They couldn't record a video and make a TikTok or a YouTube out of it. All they could do was write down what they saw, but they were real people doing that. So that's why I believe there's evidence. There's enough written evidence, which we explored earlier, that the gospels are real and they were from real people. So the fact that you've never seen these things, Right, Because long before there was photography or videography or social media, there were humans that saw things and there was writing. That was the tool. I'll tell you this, if photography had existed back then, I would struggle to believe in Jesus as I go, why isn't there a picture of the crucifixion? Why isn't there a picture of his tomb? Right? Well, the reason why there's not a picture is because there were no pictures of anything. I would struggle to believe that, but pictures aren't invented till later. The printing press isn't invented till later. That's actually part of why I believe this is I go, why weren't there, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies? The answer is simple. There wasn't a printing press, right? These are people writing on papyrus and whatever these other, you know, ancient tab, like not tablets, but like, what are these, uh, these other ancient materials that people are writing on? And it's not until later that they're able to be reproduced in mass. And that's why the early look in this series about the recovered writings and the original manuscripts for which there are massively more that support the life of Jesus than any other figure in history of that time, exponentially more, not a little bit more, the way more. So those are some of the reasons why. So the fact that you've never seen miracles 
and that I've never seen miracles. I've never seen someone turn water into wine. I've never seen that. On the surface, you go, that should discredit the idea that this could ever happen. And that's where I lived for a long time is going, I've never seen this. So I don't believe it it could happen. But in reality, it's the opposite. The fact that you've never seen it shouldn't discredit the story of Jesus. It should increase the credit of the story of Jesus. Meaning, the fact that you've never seen anyone else do these things points to the fact, again, either he's crazy and he's a magician, he was the earliest, greatest magician of all time, and you go, he's crazy. And you might come to that realization, which is fine. I can buy that. But the fact that no one else has done it points to he is different. He is set apart. He is unique. He is holy. He is divine. He is miraculous because no one before him and no one since him has been able to do these things. And therefore, he is different, set apart, holy, divine. Or he's crazy and he's a magician and that's fine. But there is something different about him. So it doesn't mean that just because you've never seen it and just because you wrestle with the supernatural and the idea of the supernatural ever happening, that doesn't mean you can't be a Christian. I struggle with it. I go, okay, I have to believe this. I have to believe this is true, right? Like I have to believe dinosaurs are true, even though I've never seen a Tyrannosaurus Rex. All I've seen is lots of pictures of it and lots of lots of people believe it, but lots of people believe in Jesus. And there's lots of pictures of Jesus too. So how do I get myself there as I go, gosh, the evidence points to, and it's possible it existed, even though I've never seen it. So the other thing about spirituality and the supernatural I want to touch on real quick is you should note that there are also a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus or who don't yet know Jesus, who do believe in the supernatural. So you don't have to automatically equate, oh, Christians are these crazy people who believe in the supernatural. Well, actually, there's a whole lot of non-Christians who believe in supernatural things, right? There's a lot of psychics. There's a lot of tarot card readers. There's a lot of, you know, mystics. There's a lot of people who have found whatever evidence that they have found to believe in things that are supernatural. Now, granted, once you enter the realm of the supernatural, it, to me, it gets a little bit fuzzy. Like, who's defining that world? I don't know, right? I don't enter into that world too much. All I'm trying to do is figure out, was this Jesus guy legit? Was he too legit to quit? Or, you know, like, or was he a liar, right? Because he made a huge impact in the world. And I have to reconcile that for my own life. There's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus who do believe in the supernatural, or they believe in God, or they recognize the universe. They recognize there are forces at play around us that are bigger than what we can see, right? You cannot see love per se, but you believe that it's there. I mean, there's other things you can't see. You can't see gravity, but we believe it's there and there's evidence of it and it's been explained and there's scientific rationale behind it. Just because you don't haven't seen it doesn't mean it isn't real or that it can't be explained. And also, you don't have to be a Christian to believe in supernatural things. There's many people who believe in supernatural things, 
There's also something called general revelation. General revelation is to basically consider the magnitude of the earth and the solar system and the delicate balance of nature and birth, right? And life and death, the circle of life and the food chain and the way that this world lives in this beautiful and perfect harmony, the way that our bodies repair themselves and heal themselves, the way that you know, trees make air and humans breathe air and like the circle of life, right? It's the circle of life. Like you don't have to be a Christian to be able to have general revelation to go. There's no way that nature is cosmic luck, right? Like the result of cosmic luck of like, you know, whatever these, you know, neurons or, you know, atoms colliding and there's this huge explosion and, and this incredible luck that has built this perfect world and this perfect solar system where, by the way, only one of the planets in the solar system has the, the perfect tilt and relation and distance to the sun and spin to give life and create the energy and the, the forces of physics that allow life to exist. And only here in my eyes, it's like, it takes more faith to believe that. It takes more faith to believe that like this perfect, beautiful world with all of these things are the result of cosmic luck and just like the perfect balance of, you know, atoms and neurons firing at this moment in time and it all, you know, exploding in this like scientific explanation. To me personally, that requires a bit more faith than intelligent design than to go, oh yeah, how does a mother create a body, grow a human inside of her body and then birth it and then feed it, like just watching birth, you go, there's no way this is cosmic luck. Like this is intelligent design. There's evidence of a designer in the world, in nature, the way that the symbiotic ecosystem of water and air and animals and food, like there's no way this is luck. This is intelligent design. Now you might believe it is luck. You might believe, no, it's it's science. But you know, I believe that science is just trying to deeply explain how God works, right? So I believe in science, but you know, I believe that there's intelligent design. That's called general revelation. So maybe you go, I'm not a Christian, but I have general revelation, right? I kind of go like, man, I feel like there's a God. Like, you know, it's one thing to be atheist to go, I don't believe in God at all. I just believe that the world that we live in is the result of, I don't mean to like make this sound negative, but that there's a random set of atoms and neurons that combined and created this explosion and the solar system and the earth and life as we know it is the random result of that. That's what some people believe. So you might go, well, I believe in God because I believe in general revelation. I don't believe it's random. You know, like I look at what's around me and I cannot just believe that it came together accidentally you know, there's a designer. Someone had to design this. It's too designed to not believe in a designer. So you go, okay, I believe in God, right? So there's atheists. I don't believe in God at all. There's, you know, hardcore Bible thumping Jesus freaks like me who have say, well, I've gone through this whole journey and I believe, I believe all of it. Like I'm in hook, line and sinker after, you know, looking at the research that we're going through now. And then there's, I think a large population of people who go, yeah, I struggle. I believe in God or the universe, or some higher power, right? I go, I look at the world around me. I look at my children. I look at animals. You know, I go on the zoo or the safari, or I look at the stars, or I look at the mountains, or the ocean, and I am, I am overcome somehow with this sense 
that I am a super small part of a bigger design, this beautiful, brilliant design, but I struggle to believe in Jesus and somebody walking on water and someone rising from the dead, which by the way, brother or sister, I don't blame you. Uh, Clearly I've struggled with those things too, for walking through them. He goes, so, but I also don't believe that the world was created by random, you know, atoms coming together and colliding or, you know, I don't believe the creation of the world is random. It's not lottery or luck that I'm here, but intelligent design. So, you know, I understand that continuum of, I don't believe in God at all. I do believe in God, but I struggle to believe in Jesus. And then obviously where I am, which is like, I believe in Jesus hook, lie, and a sinker, but I've struggled to believe in a lot of things about Jesus. And that's really where we're at here. So, all right. So this is just the disclaimer here on the supernatural because this stuff matters, right? If you go, how are you an intelligent person and you believe in these miracles? One other historical thing, remember, this was an earlier point that I made, but according to the scholar Gary Habermas, right, in his book, The Verdict of History, there's 39 ancient sources that document the life of Jesus, including seven of which are totally secular. And together, they verify over 100 facts about Jesus's life and teachings, this crucifixion, the resurrection, several of those that are prophecies that are written in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about here later but that 24 of these 39 ancient sources reference the divine, the mystical, or the miraculous nature of this man, Jesus, right? So 24 out of 39 are pointing to, they're they're specifically documenting something weird, right? Let's call it weird. Something weird about this Jesus fella something unexplainable, something that is not explainable. It's it's abnormal. It's unusual. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural, right? Not natural about Jesus. And so that's an important point, right? It's not like something people made up years later along the way that didn't become fable or legend. It was documented right away. Okay. So, all right. So let's get into the miracles here and let's just look at this. So that's my disclaimer on the supernatural. And just, if you're an intelligent person reconciling the supernatural in general, because again, granted some of this stuff, I believe all this stuff I'm about to say about these miracles. And some of them I go, that's crazy. I can't believe I believe that. I do believe it. Let's look at the miracles first, and then we'll look at prophecy. There's at least 35 miracles recorded in the New Testament, okay? So like, again, I haven't spent my whole life studying this. I've spent a great deal of time studying it, but you know, there's at least 35 miracles. There could be more. I haven't nailed this down exactly, but that are recorded in the New Testament, but in the Gospel of John, right? So this is, again, John, part of Jesus' inner circle. He ends the gospel of John. He ends his documentation of Jesus's life or his account. So in John chapter 20, verse 30, this is what John says. And this is verbatim. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And then again, in John chapter 21, verse 25, John says says this, it's a follow-up. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world 
would not have room for the books that would be written. And this is an important part to me. This is an important statement because you go, well, if Jesus was miraculous, like if you had supernatural powers, why weren't you doing all kinds of all kinds of stuff? And the answer was, he was. He was doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Like it wasn't like doing a magic trick or a magic show that he had this one trick that he did one time or like these five things that he did. He was blowing it up. Like at some point, it's almost like he's showing off. I mean, he's doing stuff left and right. We're going to look at him, right? So it wasn't like, oh, one person saw him do a miracle one time. That's not how it was. Like my homeboy Jesus was like, he was peacocking, <laughs> right? Like we call it peacocking. Like he wasn't showing off. That's not why he was doing it. But like he wasn't hiding it. He wasn't doing it a little bit. And he wasn't doing it in one way. Like he wasn't a one trick pony. He had many tricks in his bag. And we're going to look at the categories. All right. So I grouped them here by categories, but there's at least 35 that are recorded. And that means there's 35 that are recorded. So we know that those are documented, but John, who is one of the closest people to the living Jesus said, there's a lot more than I, I mean, basically like, I didn't have time to record all this stuff for you people. Right. Like I've recorded like some of the big ones or, you know, I recorded enough, you know, I've recorded so much there's enough here that either you believe or you just don't believe. And I documenting more of this is not going to make you believe. Like if you don't believe based on what is documented, you're not going to believe based on documenting more is basically what he's saying. And I go, awesome. Thanks for that, John. Like, thanks for that little heads up, that little tidbit. So there are a couple categories. There are four categories of miracles. I've grouped them into four categories. Okay. So this is me going 35 documented miracles. I've grouped them into four categories. First is power over nature. Second is power over sickness and disease. Third is power over darkness and demons. And the fourth is power over death itself. Okay. So I'm going to run through these quickly. These are the miracles where I go, okay, again, it's one thing if you're a magician to go, I could turn water into wine. There's probably a magician who could, an illusionist, who could do that today? Maybe if someone hasn't done that, they should do that because I'm sure it would gain all sorts of viral attention. But like you go, okay, maybe an illusionist could turn water into wine. Great. Maybe an illusionist could walk on water. And you go, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, set up some mirrors or something, you know, in a net somehow, make it look like I'm walking on water. Okay, you you could maybe do that. But could you stop the wind? <laughs> right? Could you bring a dead person back to life? That extends a little bit beyond magic, right? So let's look at, first of all, Jesus's power over nature. I'm going to cite these so you can go read the documentation for yourself. So in Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 through 27, Jesus calms a raging storm. So he's in a boat. There's a bunch of waves around. The disciples, his homeboys are freaking out. They wake him up. Jesus is asleep, right? Jesus is like catching some Z's. He's like, I'm asleep in the front or in the back of the boat or wherever he was. Jesus is asleep. He's just chilling. His homeboys are freaking out. They wake him up like, Jesus, we're going to die. And Jesus goes and calms the storm. And it's recorded that a few of the disciples go, whoa. And they believe in that moment. They go, who is this man where that the wind and the water listen to this man? Right. So I have to think some of them were kind of teetering, like, ah, I believe in this guy, but I don't really know. And then all of a sudden he says, you know, be still. 
and the waves stop and the wind stops, the storm just stops and they go, okay, I'm in. Yep. Didn't believe before. I'm in now. Right. You got me. Right. That's so that's in Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 through 27 in Matthew chapter 14. So this is verses 15 through 21. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So he takes five loaves of bread. He takes two fish. Okay. So somebody brings him five loaves of bread and two fish. There's like 5,000 people sitting in front of him and he turns it miraculously into enough food to feed 5,000 people. Now, again, you know, an illusionist maybe somehow could say, I'm going to take five loaves of bread and turn it into 20 or 50 or a hundred or, but to have 5,000 people eat the bread and go, nope, I saw there were five loaves and now there's 5,000 people putting food in their mouth. Not easy to pull off, okay? So that's power over nature. So, and then Jesus walks on water, which I mentioned, uh, Matthew 14, 22, it's chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Jesus walks on water. Like, there it is. And somebody, people saw it and they recorded it. And then in Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 39, Jesus feeds another couple thousand people, like 4,000 people. This time he started with a little more. I think he had seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. So he does it again, right? It's like, okay, here's some um, feed more people. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, Jesus withers a fig tree. What does that mean? It means there's a fig tree that is alive. And in a moment, it withers in front of him, right? Like it withers, it shrivels, it dies, right? That's power over nature. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Jesus catches a great haul of fishes, right? In John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus turns water into wine in front of a whole bunch of people. This is his first miracle, if I, if I recall correctly. This is the first documented miracle in Jesus's like ministry. It's the first time the sort of like his supernatural, he sort of shows his supernatural power. John chapter two, verses one through 11, Jesus turns water into wine. In John chapter 21, verses one through 14, Jesus captures a second great haul of fish, meaning like throws a net over, catches a huge amount of fish. Not just like, you know, I threw my fishing line in the water and snagged a couple, but like a haul of fish where there were no fishes or there were no fish. What's the plural of fishes? Fish, I don't know. So that's power over nature. There's miracles documented that demonstrate his power over nature. Then there are, as I counted, 17 miracles that demonstrate Jesus's power over sickness and disease, right? So I'm telling you, there's 35 miracles that I've, you know, I count and about half of them, almost half of them are power over sickness and disease, which by the way, that lines up with who Jesus said he was, right? Jesus is a healer. Jesus loves people. And so he uses most of his supernatural power not to show off, right? He feeds people because they're all sitting there listening to him and they're hungry, right? He calms the storm not to show off, but because his disciples are freaking out, right? He turns water into wine because he's at a wedding and they need wine. And it's a big part of like the culture of the celebration. And Jesus goes like, I got you here, right? He's not showing off. He's not using his power to like, get followers and vanity. He's using it to help people and to serve people. And that's why most of his 
Miracles are around sickness and disease. So in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus heals a paralytic. Okay? Again, not an easy magic trick to perform. Someone's paralyzed. Have you ever met anyone who's paralyzed? If there's anyone in your life that you go, I know this person is paralyzed. They're paralyzed. I've been with them. Like they don't walk. And then they meet Jesus. He says something or prays a prayer over them and they stand up and walk. Like not quite a magic trick, right? Like that's supernatural. And this didn't just happen once. He didn't just heal one person. He did it 17 different times at least. So in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 31, Jesus cures two blind men. There's one person very close in my life that I'm very close to in my life who is blind. She is a blind woman. I know that she's blind. If she suddenly had sight, she met a man and I watched her interface with this man and then she had sight and she told me she could see, that would be worth documenting, right? That would be worth posting on social. I would be telling people about that. This is exactly what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 through 33, Jesus cures a mute, right? So someone who cannot talk suddenly can talk. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, Jesus restores a withered hand. So I'm not totally clear on exactly what that means, but something happened to this person's hand and he restores it. That would blow my mind. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 through 34, Jesus cures two blind men. So again, he's helping the blind see. In Mark chapter 1, verses 30 through 31, Jesus cures Peter's mother-in-law of fever. Okay, now that's one where I go, I'm glad that's there because to me, that one is one that could be make-upable, right? It's like, oh, I had a fever. Oh, my fever went away, right? Like, okay, like that one could be like disputable. It means something to me that these small ones are in here too to go, not every one of them was calm in a storm, you know, or make bringing a dead person back to life. It's, oh, he's healing a fever. Okay, great. I'm glad that some of those are in there. Thank you for listening to this special podcast series, Eternal Life, Seven Questions Every Intelligent Skeptic Should Ask About Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully, you'll notice that I've tried to take great care in documenting and citing references so that you can go explore the sources yourself. If you would like a consolidated copy of all of these citations, including an organized listing of all of the Bible verses that I referenced throughout the whole series, please visit eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free, and I'll send it to you. Again, to grab that free resource, just head over to eternallifepodcast.com forward slash free. Enjoy. In Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, he heals a man with leprosy. In Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus cures a deaf and mute man. So he cannot hear or talk. And now all of a sudden he can hear and is talking. Pretty extravagant. In Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, Jesus cures a blind man. Why is he curing blind people? Because he's helping them. He's loving them. He's making their life better. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus is about love. He's about restoration. He's about compassion. He's about peace. 
that is the father, like Jesus and the father are one. That's what a father does, right? I mean, who of you listening, if you're a parent, if you had the power, if you had the money and you had the ability, if you had a child who was deaf, or if you had a child who was blind, or you had a child who was paralyzed, what parent wouldn't give their everything, their life savings, their retirement, their home, quit their job, do anything to restore their child's gift of hearing or sight? That's what a loving parent would do everything they would know to do, try to do that, right? That's what God the Father is. So that's what Jesus is. And so that's what, when Jesus has supernatural powers, he's not going, you know, let me rub a genie and do something trivial. He's healing people. And you go, not just one person, lots of people. People are desperate. They're crawling in the dirt to just touch him for healing. That is what he was doing. At least that's what the scriptures say, right? So he's not a showboater. He's not a peacocker. He's a lover and he's a healer and he's using his powers to do good in the world. Yeah, this is the woman. So in Luke chapter eight, verses 43 through 48, Jesus heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, right? She touches his cloak. She's desperate to touch him and he feels the power leave his body. He didn't even know. She just had, she touched him and she believed that she'd be healed and she was healed. And then Jesus stopped. He was surrounded by a crowd and he said, who touched me? He felt the power leave his body. He knew he'd healed somebody. And then she says, you know, it was I, like she owns up to it. She had so much faith that she she would be healed. And, you know, he healed her just through touch. Um, in Luke chapter 14, verses one through four, Jesus cures a man of dropsy, which apparently is abnormal body swelling. I had to look that one up. I didn't know what dropsy was. Apparently that's abnormal swelling of the body. Jesus cures this man on the Sabbath, right? So Jesus is breaking the law right? He's breaking the law. Why is he breaking the law? You go, I thought Jesus was a good person. Why is he breaking the law? He's breaking the law to heal people, right? He goes, I don't care about the law. I care about healing. I care about love. I care about hope where you go, if it were against the law to rescue someone from sex trafficking, but you had a chance to do it, would you do it? Jesus would. He's going, if I had the power to save somebody and to help somebody and it was against the law, I don't care about the stupid law. The law is love. The law is healing. And if I have the power to help someone, I'm going to help somebody. Jesus does that to his own demise. So he was killed for it. Eventually, this is why he was killed. He was breaking traditions and laws. Ultimately, he was killed for blasphemy because, you know, he was like, he didn't deny being God because that's who he was. In Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, Jesus cures 10 lepers, cures 10 lepers. In Luke chapter 22, verses 50 through 51, Jesus heals the ear of the high priest's servant, right? So I believe this is where, you know, they come to take Jesus. They're going to like, this is where he's about to go be crucified. And Peter cuts off the servant's ear. Jesus just basically says, calm down, Peter. Like, I got this. Like, I know what's going to happen to me. I'm okay with it. This is God's design of my life that I would die for you, right? So Jesus has a level of perspective that Peter doesn't. And Peter cuts off the guy's ear and Jesus touches his ear and heals it, right? Which is wild, right? It tells you something about Jesus' character. He's going, this guy is part of the army that is coming to kill Jesus, one of Jesus' homeboys, Peter, his biggest, arguably his, his closest, you know, of his inner circle, says, you're not going to take my Jesus. And he cuts his ear off. And Jesus says, back off, Peter. And then he heals the ear 
you know, why? Because there's this man in pain in front of him and Jesus feels responsible for it because it's his friend who hurt this man. So Jesus immediately heals the guy's ear, but these soldiers are, you know, commanded to like take Jesus and turn him in. And so they do. In John chapter four, verses 46 through 47, Jesus cures a royal official's son who was near death. In John chapter five, verses one through nine, Jesus heals an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, right? This is the same pool of Bethesda that we thought didn't exist, right? Because it it had been recovered. And then recently, archaeologists discovered that it did exist and it was verified that this is an actual place that doesn't necessarily prove that that this miracle happened, but it points to the accuracy of the evidence of the documentation that there is a there's a Bethesda and there's these pools and and probably was true that people who were sick believed that these pools had healing miraculous power and water and there's somebody this man laying by the pool and he's he's just he's too weak and unable to get into the water and Jesus heals him in John chapter 9 verses 1 through 38 is the story of Jesus cures a man that was born blind on the sabbath So there it is, his power over sickness and disease, which is if you go, if he was God, if he was supernatural, I mean, if you were supernatural, like if you had divine powers like that, what would you do with them, right? There's some people who are of the character that might show off and like be try to become famous, but most people would go, no, I want to heal the people I love. I want to who would you heal? You'd heal the people close to you. You would heal the people who you saw. And if someone traveled a great distance to see you and you had the power to heal them, you would heal them. That's what doctors do, right? That's what doctors do. Doctors dedicate their life to try to bring healing. Who do they heal? Everyone they can. That's what Jesus did, right? That's not that hard to believe. He's using his supernatural power. Now, There's other miracles that Jesus performs. So category one is he demonstrates his power over nature. Jesus demonstrates, it's documented. He is more powerful than nature. He demonstrates his power over sickness. And then he demonstrates his power over darkness and demons, the demonic. He does that several times. So in Mark chapter one, verses 23 through 28, Jesus casts out a demon of a person. In Matthew chapter eight, Verses 28 through 34, Jesus cures two demon-possessed men. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, Jesus heals a demon-possessed blind and mute man. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 22 through 28, Jesus heals a Canaanite woman's demon-possessed daughter. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21, Jesus cures a demon-possessed boy. In Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, Jesus heals an 18-year crippled woman on the Sabbath. Now you might, let's talk about this one. You might not believe in demon possession. You maybe have never seen it. I have never seen a demon-possessed person, I don't think. I've seen some, you know, people on the streets who are maybe schizophrenic or on drugs or maybe demon-possessed. I don't know. I don't know enough to call them demon-possessed. But there are people who have spent time around demon-possessed people today, right? You may not have seen it. We don't see it a lot. There's not hundreds of miracles documented here that Jesus did this. There's a handful, right? You don't see it a lot, but you do see it. I have a very close personal friend who has a very close cousin 
Okay. I have a close personal friend. This is someone who is very successful. They're intelligent. They are of sane mind. They are actually a really brilliant person. They are, by all the world's standards, tremendously successful person. And this person has a cousin who is demon-possessed. And this is a woman who lives in a home and does not leave the home because her family doesn't know what to do with her. And, you know, they try to treat her and, but it's, you know, they've tried different things. Like this does exist even in the world today. You may not have seen it. I may not have seen it. It may not be common, but I mean, you can go on YouTube and Google demon possession. And like, you know, I don't, I would encourage you not to do that. But if you struggle and you go, I don't believe that, go on YouTube you know, search for demon possession and like watch a few videos, right? Some of them are going to feel fake and made up. Some of them will scare the living crap out of you. So I would encourage you not to do that unless you really, really don't believe it. And you really go, I don't believe in anything I don't see. Well, go search it on YouTube, my friend. Like I would not encourage you to do that, but be my guest. So Jesus has power over darkness, power over demons. You know, it's recorded that demons they talk to Jesus and they're afraid of him, right? It shows the supernatural order that there is a supernatural you know, realm and that there is a, a hierarchy in the supernatural realm and Jesus is at the top. Demons shudder. They're afraid of him. They surrender to him. They submit, you know, the way that I might submit to, you know, somebody with a gun or somebody who is a, from the FBI or the president asked me to do something, you know, or something, right? Like somebody, my boss asked me to do something like demons submit to Jesus. He has supernatural authority. And that's why the name of Jesus is so powerful because it's like you have supernatural protection in the name of Jesus. And, you know, there's a whole world you can explore there. The supernatural, I haven't gotten into it so much, but this is, again, I'm looking at history here in documentation. The fourth category of of miracles is that Jesus demonstrates his power over death itself. So power over nature, power over sickness, power over demons and the darkness and the demonic, but then power over death itself, not just once, multiple times, multiple times. This is recorded that Jesus defeats death. What in the world? Blow my freaking mind, right? If you saw somebody defeat death, you might write about it, right? You might take a picture of it. You might tell your friends. You might post it on Twitter or X or whatever. Like you might tell somebody about it. So when did this happen? You can read it yourself, okay? Luke chapter seven, verses 11 through 18. Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, Jesus raises a synagogue leader's daughter from the dead. Now, and you might go, okay, well, you know, how do you know they were really dead? And, you know, maybe they weren't medically dead. I mean, maybe they weren't, right? But these people who were there all thought that those people were dead. Okay. That's why they wrote about it. Not just once and not just one person, right? You've got Luke is different from Matthew. These are all different accounts, right? From different people about different instances. These are the documented ones. There's potentially more. And then there comes Lazarus. Okay. So John chapter 11, verses one through 46. Lazarus is Jesus's friend. Lazarus is dead for four days. 
Four days. Jesus isn't even in the same city. Jesus hears people come to tell him that your friend Lazarus is dead because Jesus is his friend. Actually, I think they said, I think they come when Lazarus is still alive saying, come heal. Your friend is dying. Come take care of him. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go yet. Either because he had work to do or because he knew that this was God's will, this hypothesis as to why Jesus didn't come immediately, but it ends up being for God's glory because Lazarus dies and is dead, not breathing for four days. Okay. Pretty hard to argue with someone who's dead for four days, laying there, not moving, not breathing, not eating, not drinking, not going to the bathroom, four days, dead person. Jesus comes and raises Lazarus back to life. That is a catalyst. When he raises Lazarus to life, this becomes a catalyst to the end of Jesus's life. Because what happens is this almost kicks off Holy Week, which is the week of Jesus's death, you know, the last week of Jesus's life. Because what happens is a few days later is Palm Sunday. You maybe have heard of that Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding on a donkey and people are worshiping Jesus. They're waving palm branches at him. Why are they doing it? They're doing it because people heard about Lazarus, right? People had heard about Jesus. There was sort of like, you know, word spreading about Jesus. But after Lazarus, it was like people who didn't believe, they started to believe because this guy was dead for four days. Jesus brings him back to life. It's documented. People see it. They go, this is not magic. This is supernatural. This is divine. This is unexplainable, abnormal, extraordinary like unusual to a point where the most disbelieving disbeliever could not argue with what happened. And so people start worshiping Jesus and the Pharisees don't like that. And this is part of what kicks off, you know, the dominoes that are ultimately going to lead to Jesus being crucified here in a few days. And then Jesus is crucified. And then what happens? And Luke chapter 24 verses five through eight and several other places, which we'll talk about later, Jesus rises from the dead himself. We're going to look at the evidence for a resurrection. That's going to be our whole next question number five. So we'll look at that later. If you come to believe all this, Jesus rises from the dead and you go, oh, it's not that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Because you could say, well, you know, there's all these things we'll talk about here. Like maybe the disciples took his body and, you know, there's all these other kind of arguments and things that we have to explain and debunk basically. But you go, when Jesus rose from the dead, this is important to realize, when Jesus rose from the dead, that wasn't the first time he demonstrated his power over death, right? Like that's an important thing to realize. When Jesus resurrected himself from the dead, that wasn't the first time he demonstrated his power over death. So it's one thing to struggle in the resurrection because it's hard to believe right? Like I can submit on that point. It's hard for me to believe to go, I've never seen anyone rise from the dead, <laughs> right? I've never seen that. That blows my mind. But one reason why it might be believable, a little more believable is it, it wasn't just the first time that that happened. Jesus demonstrated it and he demonstrated it multiple times with Lazarus who was dead for four days. So, okay. Like he has power over death and it was documented. So why did these people continue to follow him? Right. If you say all this stuff was magic and he's crazy, again, that's something I accept. I can go, okay, sure. 
right? That to me is a reasonable rationalization, right? I think you just kind of, it's like, ultimately you either go, I'm a hardcore Bible thumb, and Jesus freak, or I think this guy's crazy and all this stuff is made up. Like either one of those ultimate, I just feel like those are the inevitable conclusions. You have to arrive at one of them. But if you think this was all magic trick or made up, well, something you have to come to reconciliation with is all of these people continued to follow him. The disciples followed this man, left their lives, left their occupation and traveled with this man, Jesus. That doesn't necessarily mean that this is true. The fact that these people left and followed Jesus, they could have been crazy people as well, right? I'll grant you that. But what it does tell us is that they believed it was true. They at least believed all of this stuff was true. You wouldn't leave your entire family for something that was fake, right? If you knew it was magic tricks, you wouldn't give your life for it. These people died, most of them tortured. They died gruesome, painful deaths because they believed in Jesus. Why did they believe in Jesus? Not because they had a Bible. The Bible didn't exist. They believed because they saw these things with their own eyes and they said, I don't care what you say. I believe what I saw with my own eyes. I cannot lie about that even to my death. So that doesn't necessarily mean it. these things happen, but it does mean that these people believed it. You don't die for a lie. People die for things they believe all the time, right? But they don't die for things that they know is a lie. So ultimately, at some point, you have to come to choose to believe this for yourself, right? So it still requires some faith, but you look at the evidence and you go, these people were willing to be tortured, right? They said this is what happened and they were willing to be tortured to the point of saying, I'm not going to change my story here. This is what happened. And I don't care if you torture me and murder me, I'm not changing my story because I believe it has eternal consequences. And I believe that because that's what Jesus said. And I watched Jesus do these things. And there's too much, even to the point of death, you cannot make me change my story. That's important to know. So, and the other thing is, even if you can't believe in the miracles, right? You have to see these, these miracles as signs that Jesus believed. At least Jesus believed he was the son of God, right? So it goes back to question three to say like, He's not only saying he's God, he's acting like God. Or in your case, if you disbelieve, you could say he was pretending to act like God. Again, I'll buy that. You could say, sure, he was pretending, but you can't say he didn't act like God. He acted like God. It's well-documented. So you could say it's magic and it's made up and he's pretending. Fine. If you say these people were tricked, they were deceived all the way to the point of torture and death, that's what you believe. That's what you believe. Or you say, man, if someone held a gun to my head and I knew it was a lie, I would tell them it was a lie. Many people did this. So Jesus believed he was performing miracles. The disciples believed he was performing miracles. Jesus was saying he was the son of God. He was acting like the son of God. He was doing things that were highly abnormal and unusual and difficult to explain and impossible. And other people believed the miracles he was performing. And therefore they believed he was the son of God. They followed him. They wrote this down. Then they preached about it. And ultimately they lost their lives and were murdered and killed and tortured over it. So 
there's a lot of evidence to say they believed it. So that's the first reason why you might believe that Jesus, by a logical, rational person, might come to the conclusion that, okay, I believe in all these crazy miracles because they're crazy. I mean, I can't honestly tell you, yes, do I believe it? Yes. Do I believe that they're like wild? Yes, it's wild. Why? Because I've never seen it. I can't do it. Science doesn't explain it. But that's part of why I believe Jesus was Jesus. No one did it before him and no one has done it since him. And I go, yeah, that makes sense why we divide time. The timeline of humanity is based on this person's life. Why? Because he's the only one who ever pulled this stuff off. That makes sense to me. Okay. So call me crazy, but yes, that's part of how I believe it. The other reason why I believe it is because Jesus actually fulfilled many prophecies. Now, this is one I didn't get into until recently. I always heard the word prophecy and it kind of spooked me, right? Because I, as I've admitted, I struggle to believe in the supernatural a little bit, a little bit, you know, I don't really anymore, but like my logical brain, it took me a minute to get my logical brain to sort of like reconcile the idea of the supernatural. And to me, prophecy has always felt a little bit like woo-woo, right? It, it felt a little bit like crystal ball stuff. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, that seems weird. Well, now, again, just like I've said, a non-believer doesn't struggle as much from a lack of faith as they do from a lack of research. And that was me, right? As a non-believer, I didn't struggle. I thought I was struggling from a lack of faith because I was like, I don't know if I believe in prophecy and like predicting the future and all that stuff. Felt woo-woo to me. What I know now is I was struggling from a lack of research. Why? Because of prophecies, these were not people like saying, passing down legends through just like story, like the spoken word. It was the written word. Okay. So there's some debate over what exactly counted as a prophecy. So when you think, when you hear prophecy, just, just think documented prediction. So basically a prediction of somebody writing and saying, think of us, you know, like a sports game, right? You go, I predict, you know, and the sportscasters do this every week. I predict that, you know, so-and-so is going to win by 14 points. It's a prediction. It's recorded. It's a recorded prediction. You know, I predict that the weather tomorrow is going to be whatever. It's a recorded prediction. If there were predictions that were made, you know, if somebody kept making predictions and they kept coming true, right? Like if someone could predict the lottery numbers, if they got it right one time, that would be a little bit spooky. If they got it right again and again and again, that would be supernatural, right? And not only that, but if it was written and everyone could see, this is my prediction, I'm predicting in the future, this will happen. So the Old Testament has many predictions. It has many prophecies. It has many there are many places where it's documented about a future savior, a coming Messiah, a holy being coming to earth. The Jewish people had these God-inspired ancient writings from prophets who were the people who God allegedly spoke to and said, write this down, you know, or God would give them a vision and say, write this down. And these things were written down. And so there's documented evidence of these predictions that were historical writings that were made before the arrival of Jesus. Now, what counts as a prediction is a little bit debatable, right? If I say, yeah, I think tomorrow the Colts are going to, you know, or the Titans are going to beat the Colts. Does that count as a prophecy? Well, I mean, it's a prediction of some kind, but you know, if I say, hey, I think tomorrow the home team is going to win, 
and then the Titans win. And you go, well, was that a prophecy? Well, I didn't clarify it was the Titans. I didn't clarify if that was football and unnecessary, you know, I just said the home team and I could have been talking about any home team. So, you know, there's a little bit of like dispute around what counts as a prophecy. And then, you know, of course, if you don't believe in Jesus, where you have to dispute is you would have to say that I don't believe that Jesus filled any of these prophecies. You either would have to say, I don't believe these were prophecies or I believe they were prophecies and I don't believe Jesus filled them. Or you'd say, I just don't believe in prophecy in general. And this means nothing, right? Which I guess you could come to. But to me as a logical person, as a rational person, I go, well, I have to reconcile this. There are these writings, these ancient writings that say certain things about a coming Messiah. So whether I believe in this guy as a Messiah or not, I still have to go, well, I mean, think about it this way. If I don't care about sports and I don't follow sports and I don't give a fooey about sports, if there's a sportscaster who suddenly starts predicting accurately every single game and which team's going to win and what the score is going to be and how the game is going to go, they start predicting consistently a large number of facts accurately. Even if I don't care about sports, Word's going to start to spread about that person. And at some point I'm going to be like, I want to see for myself here. Like, you know, like prove to me that this is real. Well, if that had happened and let's say that that person was making those predictions consistently and they were doing it over time, right? Like spread out. And let's say they were doing it well in advance, right? To where you would say, it's not only the game tomorrow, but they can say, because a game tomorrow could be thrown, right? You could say, well, they're only predicting it because they must be buying off the coaches and the players and the umpires. And so they're paying the people off to make sure the game turns out this certain way. That must be what's happening. But what if they were able to predict a game that was going to happen a year from now? And what if it was not just a year from now? What if it was five years from now? What if it was a hundred years from now? At some point you go, there's something supernatural about this sportscaster or this weatherman, or this weather girl, right? They're predicting it so far in advance, you just go, I can't even manufacture a conspiracy theory because the more time that passes between when you make the prediction and it actually coming true, the less able somebody would be to manipulate it. Now, let's say those predictions happened hundreds of years in advance, meaning many lifetimes, many generations passed before something came true. You'd go, the person who made the prediction had no ability to influence whether or not that prediction ever came true because they were dead. <laughs> they were not here. That sportscaster in the year 2000 predicted the outcome of a game in the year 2050 and the sportscaster died in 2010. Now you have something that you go, holy mo like now I have something that needs to be reconciled. Guess what? That's what's going on here with the life of Jesus. Blow my freaking mind. Okay. So take everything that you've learned and everything that we've talked about so far in this series. And imagine for a second that everything that I've sort of said and walked you through, imagine if it all had been predicted in advance, predicted not just once, 
but many times. Predicted not just by one person, but by several different people. Predicted not only in the spoken word, but in the written word, right? Not just my friend told me, my friend actually told me yesterday that the Titans were going to win the game tomorrow, but actually it was written down. It was recorded. It was spread throughout the whole world could see it. And then hundreds of years later, it came true. Imagine if that happened. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Wouldn't that be extraordinary? Wouldn't that be captivating? Wouldn't that be irreconcilable other than a supernatural explanation? I'm telling you, that is the life of Jesus. (laughs) Like, well, at least that's what we're going to look at. That is the Old Testament, though. That's not the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament is laws, right? It used to be called the law and the prophets. The law was the laws from God to his people, Jews, Jewish people, saying, this is how you should live. Why did he give them those laws? Because he's a perfect God, they're imperfect people. And if imperfect people want to have access and relationship with a perfect God, they had to live by certain guidelines, regulations. They're called, now they're called laws, right? So he gave them the laws. Presumably, this is why I think it's called the law and the prophets, right? So presumably it's it's laws. And then the prophets, what are the prophets? The prophets are people who were given prophecy, people who God spoke to and said, write this down and document this so that you know in the future, I'm sending you a Messiah and this is written so that you will know that it is the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, you'll be able to know that that's the person that I've been talking about, right? So God does it for our benefit to say, you need a Messiah. I'm sending you one, be on the lookout. That's basically the Old Testament. And that's why when I think of the law and the prophets, that's what it's it's called the Old Testament now, but it used to be called the law and the prophets. And when I think of why it was called the law and the prophets, that's at least how I think of it. The Old Testament, okay, it is weird. It's going to feel weird to you if you've never read it. Like it's crazy too. Like it's fascinating stories, like better than some fiction stories. So it's unusual and it's hard to read at times because of the language and the culture, right? Like it's an old language. Just like if you try to read old English, it's hard to read, right? You go like, I don't really follow. I know it's English and the words are English, but like it's written funny, (laughs) right? Like if you read parliamentary procedure and it's like, I hereby call this meeting to order and move to amend. It's like this whole language that feels weird. Just like any language feels weird, a new language feels weird, right? So this is an ancient sort of time, a different culture, right? I mean, imagine the Aztecs reading about life in America in the year 2000. Imagine them reading about the internet and TikTok and like artificial intelligence and, you know, electric cars and airplanes and nuclear bombs. Like imagine the Aztecs reading about today, right? In their culture, they would be like, this is crazy. Like, this is crazy, right? You go, there's no way the Aztecs would understand our culture today. It would feel fake to them, right? Yet it's real. And just like when we read about the Aztecs and we read about you know them making sacrifices, it feels very weird. Well, that's how it feels a little bit reading the Old Testament. There's animal sacrifices and there's all this stuff that happens that's like super weird to us because we live in a different culture, a different time, no different than the Aztecs and modern day America, right? It's a little bit 
some of that feels weird. And Gentiles, okay, so gen, when you hear Gentiles, remember that's a fancy church word for non-Jewish people. So the original people were Jewish people. They were God's people and people who were not Jewish. They weren't in that culture. They were called Gentiles because they were non-Jewish. So Gentiles, non-Jewish people didn't care about the Old Testament until after Jesus. So the reason why is they didn't have any reason to care about it. All it was, was a bunch of weird laws and a bunch of weird prophecies that hadn't come true. And all of these lifestyle regulations that were incredibly strict and how they needed to cleanse themselves and, you know, sacrifice animals. And like, you know, it was probably weird and crazy, like these weird rituals and the sacrificial system. And so Gentiles before Jesus did not care about the Old Testament. No one paid attention to it. But then later they were fascinated and curious about this law and the prophets, right? Before it was called the Old Testament, it was called the law and the prophets. And they were curious about what it had to say about Jesus. Why? Because they became fascinated about Jesus. Why? Because of all the stuff Jesus did and said and who he was. And now they're like, whoa, like, whoa, this Jesus guy blew our mind. Let's learn more about Jesus. Who knows about Jesus? The Jews do. Why? They have this whole record and log of the backstory of Jesus and the prediction of Jesus is coming. So they were like, who was this man, right? Who was this man who defied the law, who uprooted the system, who disrupted religious and political authorities, and who did all of that without violence, and who healed the sick, and who spent time with the poor? This man was friends with all the people no one else was, everyone else with power and authority didn't want to be around the poor people. They didn't want to be around the lepers, the sick people, the people who were paralyzed and blind. People who had power didn't spend their time with those people, just like the people with power today don't typically spend their time with those people. But this Jesus guy was weird. He was different. He was like, he was fascinating because it was so unusual. It was so extraordinary. It was supernatural. And after his life and his death and most of all his resurrection, which we're going to look at here in a minute, not in a minute, but in the next lesson, people said, who is this man? What else is there? What can we know about this person? They were like, oh, there's this whole history, the law and the prophets, not only a history, but predictions that he would come. And then it was like, man, if your mind wasn't blown before, then you go back to the past and you read this documented black and white prediction of this forthcoming Messiah and all of these facts about who he was going to be before he ever lived, written by people who died before he was born. It blows your mind, right? And that's where you go, holy moly. So let's walk through some of these, okay? And again, you know, if you're a non-believer, you're going to debate that any of this is true. If you're like a super believer, you know, you're going to say there's a lot more prophecies than these, okay? If you're Rory Vaden, I'm going to take the ones that I feel are the least debatable, okay? So this is not a full list of what even Christians and academics would say is the full list of prophecies. I'm not going to walk you through. There's Some people say there's like hundreds. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to take you through the ones to me that are the most verifiable, right? The ones that are the sort of the easiest to wrap your mind around and the hardest to sort of debate and argue with, right? Because that's, I'm trying to look for the concrete stuff here. I'm, if this is my eternity and this is my children's eternity, I'm trying to find the stuff that's concrete, right? So 
let's look. And here's what I'm going to do to save you time because this took me forever. I mean, this took so long. <laughs> this took me so long because the Old Testament is hard to read. And I mean, the New Testament is, you know, fun and inspiring to read. And and the Old Testament is beautiful too. But it's like, for me, at least I had to develop an appetite for it. At first, when I read it, I was like, this is crazy, like hard to follow, weird. And, you know, it was like I had to fall in love with the whole culture and it was, take some time. So I'm going to tell you where the prophecy was. So you can go look, like if you just want to go straight to it and look at it for yourself. And then I'm going to tell you where, which is in the law and the prophets or now known as the Old Testament, known as the law and the prophets back then, it wasn't called the Old Testament until there was a New Testament and there wasn't a New Testament until after Jesus lived, right? So back then it was called law and the prophets. But if you want to go straight, I'm going to tell you where to go in the Old Testament so you can read it for yourself. And then I'm going to tell you where to go in the New Testament to read the documentation that points to the fulfillment of the thing that was written several hundred years earlier. And again, this took me forever. Okay. So I'm trying to give you the concrete stuff so you can just like go do it yourself if you want to. All right. So in Isaiah chapter 35, verses five through six. So Isaiah is in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The prophet Isaiah says that this coming savior will heal the blind, the deaf, and the lame. That's written hundreds of years earlier. Prediction. One day, a man will walk the earth who will have the power to heal blind people, deaf people, and lame people. Okay? That's written hundreds of years later. In John chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Jesus heals a blind person. Actually, I, I told you just all a while ago, he actually healed many blind people, but that's one. I'm just giving you one place where this is filled. In Mark chapter seven, verses 31, Jesus heals a deaf person. And in John chapter five, verses one through 15 at the pool of Bethesda, I mentioned earlier, Jesus heals a lame person. One prophecy written hundreds of years in advance. It's kind of three prophecies, heal blind, heal the deaf, heal the lame. And then Jesus, this man, Jesus comes and is purported, it is documented. The people who are around say that he did those things. That's one. There's several. Okay. So strap in your seatbelt here. So the first thing I'm doing, by the way, I'm grouping these prophecies into some different categories, right? I'm grouping them into four categories of prophecies. So the first group of categories are distinct facts about Jesus's life. Then we're going to look at distinct prophecies and facts about his life. So then we're going to look after that, we're going to look at distinct prophecy and facts about his death and the way he dies. Then we're going to look at distinct prophecy and facts about his birth, specifically around the birth of Jesus. So three groupings, three groupings. Okay. So this is how, because there's a lot of them. So I had to group them just for my own mind to like make sense. All right. So we're looking right now at what distinct prophecies or facts are there about Jesus's life. Okay. So first one, he'll heal the blind, the deaf, and the lame. And then in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, Old Testament, it says, quote unquote, see your king comes to you riding on a donkey. Okay. Verbatim might seem like a weird abstract fact to include, right? Comes to you riding on a donkey. But then go look in Matthew chapter 21, verse seven, and go look in John chapter 12, verse 14. And you will see the recount of Jesus 
writing in during Holy Week, this is on Palm Sunday, writing in, right, to the Holy City on a donkey. It's not just he rode a donkey. He probably rode a donkey several times, you know, in his life. But he comes riding into the Holy City. People are worshiping him as King, as Messiah. It's a huge event. They're worshiping him with these palm branches because he raised Lazarus from the dead a few days ago, right? And he's riding on a donkey. So that's, you know, a concrete fact. In Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through two, it says that Jesus would bring honor to Galilee. That is filled and referenced and cited in Matthew chapter four, verses 13 through 16. Okay, then in Psalm 107, Old Testament, Psalm 107, verses 28 through 29. This is what it says. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And then in Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 41, it says this. A furious squall came up. The waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, do you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. So their first response was not belief. They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's referenced hundreds of years earlier in Psalm 107, 28 through 29. Okay. Psalm 69, verse eight says, Jesus will be rejected by his own family. And then go look in John chapter seven, verse five. And it talks about, you know, Jesus is rejected by his own family. He's not a prophet in his own land, even his own family. Hosea, Old Testament, Hosea chapter 11, verse one says, quote, out of Egypt, I will call my son. So this is saying that the son of God will spend a season of his life in Egypt. That is filled in Matthew chapter two, verses 14 and 15, which is really unexpected because Jesus is not born in Egypt. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And it's through a random series of events that Jesus ends up, well, not random series of events, a divinely orchestrated series of events, but in a very unexpected fashion, Jesus ends up spending some time in Egypt as a baby, as a child, and then he comes back to the Holy Land. That's predicted. That's predicted in writing hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Malachi chapter four, verses five through six. So Malachi is the Old Testament. It says that the prophet Elijah would be sent before the Lord comes and dies. And then Jesus identifies that as John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verses nine through 14, and Matthew chapter 17, verses nine through 13. So you can go look at that. In Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verses four, okay, so Old Testament Isaiah, it says, quote unquote, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases, right? That's what it says. He takes up our infirmities. He bores our diseases. That's a description of this coming Messiah. And remember what I said earlier in this lesson, 
on miracles. Nearly half, 17 of 35 that I found, of 17 of 35 documented miracles in the New Testament are Jesus healing people of their diseases, right? That was predicted that he would do that way before it happened by someone, Isaiah, who's dead by the time Jesus was born. So those are distinct facts about his life. Now, to me, it's not that any one of those things by itself proves that Jesus is the Messiah. What it is, is those are, you kind of look at the minor, you look at all these minor things to come to a major conclusion, right? So if I go, several minor things are true, you go, did dinosaurs exist? Well, we found this fossil over here and this fossil over here and this fossil over here, and we were able to recreate this. This would work like this and da-da-da-da-da, right? No one piece of evidence confirms the whole story, but the more evidence there is when you put all the evidence together, it adds up to you either you coming to a conclusion, either the person is guilty or innocent, either dinosaurs existed or they did not. Either we live in a solar system with planets and Saturn has rings around it or it does not, right? These are minute, but they're specific things. And when you just calculate the randomness of them being written so far in advance, and then Jesus's life actually documenting, fulfilling them is crazy, okay? So let's look at the second set is distinct facts and prophecy about Jesus' death. So in Isaiah chapter 53, verses three through 11, it says this, quote, he rejected by mankind, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we are healed. And then later it goes on, it says, Lord has laid on him the iniquity of our sins. Later it goes on, he is assigned a grave after he suffered, okay? That description is written 600 years before Jesus of Nazareth is born and walks the earth. In John chapter 19, verse 34, it records that one of the soldiers pierced, right? It said pierced for our transgressions. John chapter nine, verse 34, John records that one of the soldiers pierces Jesus's side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So why did Roman soldiers do this? They did it to make sure that people were dead. If they weren't already sure they were dead on the cross, then they jab them with a spear. And that's how you know they're dead. All their blood and their water drains out. Sorry, it's graphic. I know. But so Jesus is literally pierced. In Isaiah 53, 12, so chapter 53, verse 12, it says that he would be killed alongside with or among criminals. So it actually says he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. So the language of the Old Testament says numbered with the transgressors. That's what you'll read in Isaiah 53, 12. Well, numbered means killed and transgressors means criminals. So what it's saying 600 years before Christ is born and later crucified, it says, the man you're looking for will be killed among criminals. Then if you fast forward to Luke chapter 23, verses 33, this is what it says, quote, when they came to the place called the skull, which is Aramaic for Golgotha, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right 
the other on his left. So this is documented that Jesus, even though he was a person of love, you know, what crime did he commit? Well, the crime he committed was blasphemy because he he didn't deny that he was God. And he healed on the Sabbath and he did these things that said he was God because he was God according to him, right? And that's what he was killed for. So ultimately, ultimately, this is the great irony is the Jews, the people that he belonged to are the ones who killed him. The Pharisees are the ones who killed him. They're the ones who knew the Jewish law, which, you know, blasphemy was punishable by death. Well, Jesus in their eyes commits blasphemy because he's doing these things that were divine. But also in their writing that they had 600 years before, it said specific facts about him that they missed. And people missed and they didn't realize until after Jesus was dead and gone. And they all started like looking at the law and the prophets with fresh eyes. So Jesus killed among criminals, even though he's not a criminal. I mean, he didn't wrong anybody. He loved people and helped them. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine, it says, he was assigned a grave. And then, you know, it goes on a little bit. And then later in the phrase, it says, with the rich in his death. He was assigned a grave with the rich in his death. In his death. And this is a significant aspect of prophecy, which you probably wouldn't catch if you didn't have someone explain this to you, because I certainly didn't realize this for a long time. This is a very significant aspect of prophecy because there is almost no way that a poor person, and Jesus was poor, he was born to a poor family and he was poor. He lived a life of poverty. He traveled around, right? There's no way that a poor person who was given a sinner's death, like a criminal's death, would be buried among rich people, right? Rich people were buried differently, just like today, right? Rich people often are buried differently, different tombs, different services than poor people, right? Poor people die and, you know, what happens to them after their death is different than like rich people or famous people. There's difference in what happens. So the fact that there's a prophecy that says he will die a criminal's death, which he does, and then it says he will be assigned a grave that's with the rich people. If you would have read it by its own, it wouldn't have made sense. But then if you look in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 60, you can also look at Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 54, and John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, they record that a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, okay, so this is not Joseph, Jesus's earthly father. This is a rich man from Arimathea went to Pilate, who was the Roman official who sentenced Jesus to death. And he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, wrapped Jesus's body in cloth and laid the body in his new tomb that was hewn or hone made out of rock. So a rich man who was a believer asks Pilate, for the body of Jesus so that he can bury it because he loves Jesus and he wants to give up his tomb that he had made for his own death as a rich man. And he wants to give that to Jesus. So, and then in John chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, it records that Nicodemus is the person who brought a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices for the body as was custom of the Jews. So Nicodemus is Jewish and he is the one who brings those aloes and spices to treat the body, a dead body, because that was custom. 
So even though Jesus was poor, and even though Jesus was killed among sinners, and even though Jesus was killed among criminals, because of Joseph and because of Nicodemus, right? Joseph of Arimathea, to be clear, because of Joseph of Arimathea and because of Nicodemus, Jesus actually had a rich man's burial, which was recorded in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, 600 years before in a way that would never make sense that a poor man would have a rich man's burial. Minor fact, but major implications. How could you have predicted that? That's such a specific detail. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it says that he would be spit on. That is filled in Matthew 26, chapter 26, verse 67. It's recorded that Jesus is spit on. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, in the Old Testament, it says Jesus would be pierced. That is filled in John chapter 19, verse 34. In Psalm 22, 18, which is written 1,000 years before Christ's death by David, okay, So David wrote the Psalms, this Psalm written a thousand years before Christ's death. It says, they will gamble for my garments. A very specific detail about a coming Messiah who's going to die, that they will gamble for his garments. That is recorded specifically in Matthew, a thousand years later, Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, also in Mark 15, 24, and in Luke 23, 34, that they gambled for his garments. In Psalm 22, 7, it says that he will be mocked and ridiculed. That is fulfilled specifically in Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 37. In Psalm 69, verse 21, it says that he will be given vinegar to drink, right? So this is like, presumably around the time of his death, he's given vinegar to drink. This is filled in Matthew 27, 34. It's also recorded in Luke 23, 36 that they gave Jesus vinegar to drink. So those are distinct facts about Jesus's death, right? Several specific distinct facts about his life, about his death. And then the third category, and to me, this is the most important category, are distinct prophecies and facts about the birth of Jesus. Why does this matter? Okay, here's why this one matters so much to me personally. I told you early in this lesson that the two biggest reasons or the two strongest reasons why a logical, rational, intelligent, skeptical person might come around to believe that Jesus is the son of God and actually is who he said he is and that he's not crazy are looking at the miracles he performed and the circumstances and the documentation around those and looking at prophecy, looking at documented predictions and how Jesus's life led up to those predictions, right? That's how I started this lesson. Now let's throw out everything so far. So let's say you can't believe in miracles. Like, let's just say you just don't believe in miracles, right? Like you heard what I said earlier and you just go, eh, Rory, I'm just not, I just don't buy it. I'm not in it. I'm not there, man. Like, you know, say what you want, believe what you want, but not me. Like I cannot wrap my mind around miracles. So you go, okay, great. We don't believe in miracles. So miracles are off the table. And then when it comes to prophecy, one thing you might not have thought, but I think is fair for you to think. And when I make the counter argument against prophecy, here's how I would make that counter argument. I would say, well, the prophecies were recorded in advance. 
And Jewish people read them because Jewish people read the Old Testament, or at the time it was called the Law and the Prophets. So Jewish people were aware of those prophet or prophecies, which means that Jesus's disciples, presumably some of them were Jewish. I don't actually know if all of them were Jewish or not, but who cares whether they were Jewish or Gentile or non-Jew, you know, Jewish or non-Jew, they had access, they could have had access to the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, which means they could have read them, which means if they believed Jesus was the Son of God, or if the whole thing is like some magnificent hoax, this orchestrated hoax and the disciples are in on it. And they, even when they were tortured, they still never, none of them ever came clean. Either they were crazy and they were in on this hoax or they believed it and they were wrong and they just happened to believe the wrong thing. Either way, they could have read the Old Testament and the old prophecies and they could have deliberately tried to manufacture elements of Jesus's life to fill the prophecies right? They could have deliberately orchestrated and sort of tried to back Jesus back in Jesus's life to fit these prophecies that were written earlier. For example, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey that was recorded earlier. And then if the disciples said, Ooh, we want to trick everyone to make them think that this guy, Jesus is the Messiah. Let's have him ride on a donkey. Let's throw this big event and let's convince a bunch of people to come. And it's going to be this huge moment in history. And we're going to make sure Jesus is on a donkey so that, right, you could manufacture possibly, possibly, okay, wouldn't be easy, but like you possibly could manufacture details like that. You possibly could manufacture Jesus getting vinegar, right, as he's dying on the cross. You possibly could manufacture Roman soldiers gambling for his garments. You probably wouldn't have much influence over Roman soldiers, but maybe you did. Maybe you paid them off right? You could possibly convince this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to, you know, give Jesus a rich man's burial. It's possible, right? Is it likely? No, <laughs> like none of that stuff is likely. And orchestrating all of that stuff, especially for, you know, these disciples, they were kind of a ragtag bunch, right? They weren't like a super sophisticated they weren't like a super sophisticated group of folks necessarily. I mean, Luke was a doctor, but Luke wasn't a disciple. Remember, right? Luke is recording, you know, remember the gospel of Luke. When I hear Luke, I think Paul, right? And when I think the gospel of Mark, I think Peter, Matthew and John were actual disciples. They were there. They were intelligent. I just mean, these guys left their life. It wasn't like they had time to plan and orchestrate Jesus's life and death and crucifixion and resurrection but even if they did, my point here is even if they did manufacture all of those things, it would have been impossible for them to manufacture. Impossible. There's no way they could have manufactured this are distinct facts about the birth of Jesus, right? They could manufacture, maybe it would be very, very unlikely but maybe they could orchestrate things about the way Jesus lived and the way he died, but they could not plan things around the way that he was born. They couldn't make those things happen. I'm so honored that you are here. And I really hope that this Eternal Life podcast series is helpful to you and your loved ones. On that note, can I ask a quick favor? If you feel like it's appropriate, would you mind leaving me a rating and review on whatever platform it is that you use to listen to this show? That 
really helps get the word out about this so that we can reach more people with this information. And it helps people decide if this is something they should really take the time to get into. Relatedly, I also want to encourage you to share this episode or this entire series with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Obviously, it's totally free, but it's our prayer that God would use this series to reach a lot of people because we know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with doubt and skepticism, and I know what that's like. And I also know what it's like to experience the deep peace and fulfillment that comes from having completed all of this research. So if you don't mind, just visit the main listing of this series in whatever app you're using to listen to it and leave us a rating and review, and then just hit the share button and send this out to anyone in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks so much. So even if you can't believe in miracles, and even if you believe that some of these prophecies were maybe deliberately manufactured, where it would be impossible for Jesus to deliberately, Jesus himself knew the Old Testament, right? Jesus was Jewish. Jesus studied the Old Testament. So he could have manufactured these things to make people believe that he was the savior. So he also could have, you know, orchestrated that stuff. But what Jesus could not orchestrate is where he was born. You can't control where you're born, what will happen around your birth, and you can't orchestrate your own genealogy. Okay, so in Micah chapter five, verses two and four, there's a prophecy that pinpoints Bethlehem as the place of the birth of this future Messiah. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Imfrata, I don't know if that's how you say that word, Imfrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, God's people whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, out of you, Bethlehem, right? That's written in Micah chapter five, verse two. And Jesus is born right there. He's born in Bethlehem and he later becomes ruler over God's people. There's no way Jesus could have orchestrated himself being born in Bethlehem, right? If he's not the son of God, if it's not divinely orchestrated, he could orchestrate some of these other things. He can't orchestrate that. You can't orchestrate what hospital you're born in, right? You can't do that. It also says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. So in Micah chapter five, verse four, it says his greatness this Messiah, this coming person, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now, let me just ask you an honest question. I'm not asking, do you believe in Jesus? I'm asking if you've ever heard of Jesus. So before this series, right, before you started listening to me, had you ever heard of Jesus of Nazareth, like prior to this? My guess is you probably had, right? So I'd say, whether you believe that Jesus is the Messiah or not, it's pretty hard to argue with the idea that his greatness hasn't reached the ends of the earth. Jesus has reached pretty much the ends of the earth. You could at least 
pretty clearly say that Jesus, more than any other human in history, has reached the ends of the earth. More than Oprah, more than The Rock, more than Michael Jackson, more than, you know, Adolf Hitler, more than Mother Teresa, more than Michael Jordan. Like, Jesus has reached close to the ends of the earth. You know, there are perhaps villages and places where people never, ever heard of Jesus. But in most of the known world, not everyone knows those other people, but most people have heard of Jesus. Do they believe in him? Not necessarily. Have they heard of him? Yes. So his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. That's pretty significant. So where is he born? Here's other facts around his birth. There are prophecies around exactly what will happen around the birth of this coming Messiah. In Matthew chapter two, okay, the Magi tip off King Herod that the king of the Jews has been born. Has been born. So the Magi come, the, these Magi, they were astrologists, okay? So how did they know that a savior had been born? They were astrologists and they were looking for a star and they saw the star in the sky. That's how the Magi knew the Savior had been born, right? You've heard of them visiting. These are the wise men, right? They're going to visit Jesus. How did they know to visit Jesus? Well, okay, they saw a star. They were astrologers. They saw the star of the Messiah. So then they go and they ask King Herod, where is this King of the Jews? And King Herod says, I don't know. He says, why don't you go find them? So in Matthew chapter two, verse eight, King Herod tells them to come notify him once they find the king. Now, the reason why they don't know this, but the reason why is King Herod was afraid of a new king of the Jews. Why? Because he was king. He didn't want a new king. So what did King Herod want to do? King Herod wanted to kill the king. If there's a new king out there who's threatening his power, What's the king going to do? He's going to kill the king. So King Herod is going to try to kill this king of the Jews, which is a baby. And he didn't really even know that he had been born. It was these magi who tipped him off. And he kind of says, oh, go find this king so that I can you know, send honor to him. Really, he wants to kill him, right? So that happens. That's recounted in Matthew chapter two, verses eight. So then the magi go. And in Matthew chapter two, verse 12, this is right after it. The Magi are warned in a dream, do not return to King Herod, right? So this is a divinely orchestrated to say, you know, they are warned, do not obey the commands of King Herod, which means they would be, you know, risking their life. But in a dream, they're told by God not to. Why? Because God knows that King Herod's trying to kill Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's how that all goes down. And this is like the Christmas story. So in Matthew chapter two, verse 13, an angel then tells Joseph to escape where? This is going to blow your mind. To Egypt. So the Magi's tip off King Herod that the king of the Jews has been born. And they know that because they saw in the stars. And then King Herod is going to kill King Jesus, king of the Jews, baby Jesus at this point. And so then there's a divine intervention here where God or an angel, you know, somehow in a dream, tells these magi, do not go back and tell King Herod where Jesus is. And then they tell Joseph, take your family to Bethlehem. So there's a warning, a preemptive warning delivered to saying, take your family from Bethlehem and go to Egypt. And this fulfills that prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse one, out of Egypt, I will call my son. So this is a random series of events that happens that 
you can see now is divinely orchestrated, but back at the time, no one could see this and engineer this. It's like, that's how Jesus ended up in Egypt. Otherwise he never would have ended up in Egypt. He only ended up in Egypt because King Herod was trying to kill him because the Magi came to told King Herod because they saw Jesus's star. So then what happens? What happens next? The Magi follow their instruction from the dream. They disobey the order of King Herod. They do not go back and tell King Herod that this baby was born. And what happens? King Herod is furious for being outwitted by the Magi. So what does King Herod do? To be safe, to preserve his own authority, he orders every male, every boy under the age of two in all of Bethlehem to be murdered, which is horrifying. But in those days, kings were ruthless, right? In those times, people were ruthless and kings would do anything to protect their power. So it's not unbelievable that a king would say, well, if you don't want to tell me which one is this king of the Jews, I'll kill all the babies. And that's what he does. And the only reason Jesus wasn't killed is because Jesus wasn't there. Why was Jesus not there? Because he's in Egypt. Why is he in Egypt? Because of this divine intervention from God that tells Joseph, you need to get out of town. You need to go. And so Joseph takes Mary and Jesus and they go to Egypt. And then King Herod murders every baby under the age of two, which guess what was a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. It says a voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Whoa, whoa. And then in Matthew chapter two, verse 18, he relates this verse to King Herod's slaughter of all baby boys in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Meaning in Matthew, Matthew actually references, he references this Jeremiah 31, 15, this voice is heard in Ramah. So he references this connection that, oh, this was a prophecy. This is how it happened. But they couldn't have orchestrated where Jesus was born and the circumstances of this and the Magi going to talk to King Herod. No one knew the Magi. They went on their own. They talked to King Herod. The way this all went down, there's no way you could orchestrate. It would be impossible. Then an angel tells Joseph to return to Israel, to the Holy Land, after King Herod dies. But Joseph didn't want to go back to Israel because even though King Herod was dead, right? So what happens is Joseph has to stay in Egypt until King Herod dies because they know if they find out that Jesus is the king of the Jews, King Herod is going to kill Jesus. Clearly, he's willing to kill anyone. So they have to wait for King Herod to die. So they stay in Egypt until King Herod dies. Then the angel comes and tells Joseph, okay, King Herod has died. Now you can go back. But then Joseph finds out that King Herod's son, his name is Archelaus, I think is how you say it, is alive. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I don't necessarily want to go back just yet because, you know, King Herod is dead, but his son is still around and his son might want to take me out and my family. So instead of going back, he went to Galilee instead. And instead, he lived in a town called Nazareth, which fulfilled, this is a semi-disputable one, but there's a disputable prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So here's what's crazy about this. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but he's exiled to Egypt. And then he's raised in Nazareth. 
So this one person, Jesus, if you say, where are you from? Where is Rory Vaden from? Well, I was born in Boulder, Colorado, but I went to Frederick High School. So I was raised in Frederick, but I live in Nashville, right? So I am from three places. It depends on the context of the conversation. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, exiled for a season in Egypt, raised in Nazareth. So he is from Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth all at the same time, which are three different locations that are all predictable, that are all predicted by multiple different prophets hundreds of years earlier before he was born. What? That's crazy. You could not manufacture that. You can't orchestrate that. You can't manipulate that. You can't artificially assemble that. It's impossible. And there's no way that that same person then becomes the same exact person who fills all these other prophecies, who then becomes the same person who performs all these miracles, then has all those miracles documented, who then dies on a cross, which is predicted and is pierced with a spear and who then is purported to rise from the dead, right? This is crazy, right? So you go, there's no, at some point here, you go, it takes more faith to believe that those things were manufactured or that they're insignificant or that they're irrelevant than it does to just believe that they're true, that what was written is what happened where he was born is because he is who he said he was and that he did do those miracles. And while it's hard to believe in miracles, a lot of people saw them and they did document them and they died for those beliefs. And that then Jesus was crucified with sinners as it was predicted because he blasphemed and he was against the people. He flipped the people who were in power, didn't like that he was gaining so much power. And so they killed him. And then, then we got to look at the resurrection and we're going to get to that in a minute, but you go, it's not so much a lack of faith as a lack of research. It's just a lack of understanding of like, Rory, you're meaning to say all of this was written hundreds of years in advance. And then there's this dude, Jesus, that did all these things who actually fits and solves and factors and qualifies all of that criteria that was creating hundreds of years before. And I'm saying, yes, 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 he is. Yes, he does. Whoa, whoa, that's mind-blowing, even for the most skeptical of people. You go, if you have a sportscaster who's predicting the score with that level of detail and accuracy hundreds of years after he's dead, and then that happens, whoa, that's a big deal. If that wasn't enough, there's other, it's not just where he was born, it's the lineage to whom he was born under. In other words, the genealogy of Jesus. We're not done yet, okay? So first of all, we know that the savior of the world will be born to a woman, okay? That's not a big stretch. Just after Satan deceives Eve in the garden, okay, this is all the way back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It tells us from this point forward that there will be a battle between good and evil, between humans and the devil, and that eventually Eve's offspring will defeat Satan, the serpent. So this tells us after the fall in the garden of Eden and original sin enters the world and Adam and Eve eat of the apple, God tells us 
the war has begun, a war between good and evil. And God immediately tells us in that first moment that there is a conflict that is going to ensue between humans and evil and that eventually a savior is going to have to come to resolve it. That doesn't come later. It comes right away. It says, so this is Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Cursed are you above all the livestock. He's talking to Satan here. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your metaphorical offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will only strike his heel. I added only, and I added the word metaphorical, but, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Meaning, let me interpret this. The strike his heel is referring to Satan gets a win. What is Satan's win? Satan's win is that he gets to crucify Jesus. So Satan gets a win. God predicts it right up front in Genesis. He says, Satan, you are going to get a strike here. You're going to win. You're going to win a battle. God is basically foreshadowing. You're going to murder my son and you're going to hurt my people. You're going to inflict pain on me because you're going to inflict pain on my son and pain on my people. But God is saying, but you're not going to win the war. You're going to win a battle. My son is going to have to die and my son is going to have to experience pain, but you're not going to win the war. And then in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, this is the NIV version. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay, so first of all, we know that there's this battle of good and evil. So that we know. And then in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, it says, uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So this is written. We know when this is written. This is Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. This is written during the ministry of Isaiah in the reign, the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh of the Southern kingdom of Judah. We know that's when this is written, which means this is written around 740 to 701 BC. So 700 years before Jesus is born, there's a prophecy that the Savior will be born of a virgin. It is said in advance, 700 years. Then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, this is filled with the account of Jesus' birth. An angel appears to Joseph explaining, you know, Joseph is set to get married to Mary and he finds out she's pregnant. So he's going to divorce her because it's dishonoring to him. And then an angel comes and says, Joseph, don't divorce Mary. She's not dishonorable. She's an honorable woman. She's carrying the son of God. She was divinely conceived. And so an angel convinces Joseph not to divorce her. So we're told that Mary is a virgin and that she conceives of Jesus as a virgin. This is really two prophecies, both that he would be born of a virgin and that he would be called Emmanuel, which by the way, means God with us. So they're predicting that this man would be born to a virgin girl, a virgin woman. So pause right here. So this is important. Even if you don't believe that that actually happened, okay? So even if you don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, because that's supernatural, right? That's requiring you to believe in the supernatural, which admittedly is hard, or at least is hard for me. So let me just speak for myself here. 
even though I struggled to believe that a man was born of a virgin without intercourse, without sex, without sperm, and everything that science tells me about how birth happens, even though it's hard for me to believe that a man would be born to a virgin, and even if it's hard for you to believe that, what you have to admit is that it's pretty freaking wild that 700 plus years earlier, someone wrote that a Messiah would be born to a virgin and that there is at least a story that this person was. So even if you don't believe that he actually was, the idea that there's so much other evidence around this person, Jesus, and the story is that he was born of a virgin, even if you don't believe that happened, you have to sort of reconcile the fact that somebody predicted that 700 years earlier that a person would be born of a virgin, even if it's not true, that a story 700 years later happened that they were born of a virgin is pretty compelling, pretty compelling, right? So that's something around Jesus's birth. You have to reconcile. Now, we're not done yet. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God tests Abraham. You may have heard this story. He tests Abraham by telling him to go sacrifice his one and only son, whose name is Isaac, as a burnt offering on a mountain. So Abraham is being asked by God to kill his own son as a sacrifice. That's pretty spooky, right? So Abraham then ties up his son. And right before he's about to kill his own son with a knife, the Lord yells out from heaven to stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He yells this out. And he says, do not lay a hand on the boy. And then God provides a ram that's caught by its horns in a thicket nearby to be sacrificed instead. So then Abraham, you know, is about to kill his son. And God says, no, no, no. Basically, this was just a test of your faith of how far you would go to believe me. Just don't kill your son. And then he provides a sacrifice and he says, okay, there's a ram over here. So you maybe have heard this story before, right? And Abraham names the mountain Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. What Jehovah Jireh means is the Lord will provide. Okay. So immediately after that, in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18, God tells Abraham, now that I know you fear God, he goes on a little later, I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky And as the sand on the seashore, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And here's the key thing. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So through the offspring of Abraham, this is all the way back in Genesis, which is the first book of the Old Testament, right? All the way back then, you know, we know that this war of good and evil and that Satan's going to get a win. And then we meet Abraham. And all the way back then, God says, through Abraham's line, through Abraham's descendants, through Abraham's you know, genealogy, his downline, his offspring, his seed, eventually through this person's line, his bloodline, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then in Matthew chapter one, verse one, Okay, so if you go to Matthew 1, 1, that's the first book, first verse of the New Testament. The lineage of Jesus is traced 
all the way back to guess who? Abraham. Jesus is an earthly descendant of Abraham. Jesus is in the birth line, the down line of Abraham. So think of all the people who have been born, okay, which was much fewer back then, but all of the people who have been born since to go, okay, Jesus goes all the way back. It's an account of 42 generations all the way back into Abraham. And Jesus satisfies that criteria. So not just where he's born and where he's from and how he's born, but to whom he is born under. He is born of a virgin. He is born as a descendant of Abraham. We're still not done yet. Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven says, Jesus will be an heir to King David's throne. What does that mean? That means that he will be in the line of David. So David is in the line of Abraham. And not only that, Jesus will be in the line of David. So you have this family tree sort of like breaking apart. And you know we know up here, there's however many people were living at that time of Abraham, but we know that the savior of the world is gonna come from Abraham's downline. So that's narrowing it down. And you go, well, yeah, how many people were living back then? I don't know, a lot less there are now probably, but still the odds, not very good, right? Very rare. But then you narrow it down further and you go, okay, also it's not just Abraham's line, but King David's line. So in Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, it says, Jesus will be an heir to King David's throne. Okay. In Isaiah nine, six, it says, for to us, a child is born and the government will be on his shoulders. It goes on to say, and the government will be on his shoulders in that verse. In Isaiah nine, seven, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. So eternity. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So have you heard of Jesus before today? Probably you have. I'd say the increase of his government has no end. This is a discussion about eternal life. So it also has no end in terms of geographic bounds or time bounds. At least that's the story of Jesus right? So I would say that that has come true. Even if you don't believe in the supernatural stuff, that part has come true. Jesus, his government has extended pretty far and wide. I can't argue with that. In Luke chapter one, verse 27, the angel Gabriel, so this is another one, right? We're not yet done. The angel Gabriel appears in Nazareth in a town called Galilee to a virgin woman named Mary. Okay. So this is a recount right in the gospel of Luke. Mary had been pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Okay. So here's what's interesting is you go, well, Joseph, this man that is supposed to get married to Mary is a descendant of guess who? David. So Jesus's earthly father actually is in the line of David which is exactly what was written hundreds of years earlier, who also falls in both the line of Abraham and the line of David. And in Luke chapter one, verse 32, it says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So this is referring, and some of the genealogy stuff feels boring and irrelevant when you first read the Bible for the first time. Like admittedly, I I skipped over this a whole bunch before it mattered to me. It never mattered to me until I was really trying to evaluate the history and you know the evidence here 
for all of this. And that's where it, it led me back to this. By the way, that same angel, okay? So that same angel that appears to Mary also tells Mary that her sister Elizabeth, who is in old age, by the way, and all we know is she's in old age and is past childbearing years. So we don't know exactly how old she is, but we do know it's recorded that her sister Elizabeth, who is past childbearing years, is six months pregnant right now. So this angel delivers two pretty big pieces of news. One is that, hey, you're going to have a baby. It's going to be conceived by the Lord. So you are going to birth the son of God. That's pretty big news. And oh, hey, by the way, your sister is six months pregnant and that your sister Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah are going to have a child who will pave the way for the Lord. So this is Jesus's cousin. It's Mary's sister Elizabeth and uncle. So it's Auntie Elizabeth and Uncle Zechariah are having a son named John. That's Jesus's cousin who is going to become John the Baptist, who Jesus later tells us is Elijah. What in the world? So what are the odds of all of this coming true? My friend, again, ultimately, you can believe that this is all hooey fooey. You can ultimately believe, I mean, if we just back up for a second and just look and go, what are the odds of this coming true? If you just separate the documentation of the miracles and you look at the prophecies alone, think about how impossible this is, that there are specific details that are documented in a time where there's not much documentation. These are documented, they're written, they're recorded hundreds of years before his birth about where he would be born, how he would be born, to whom he would be born, how he would live, the things that he would do, and then meticulous details about exactly how he would die and what would happen after he died. Think about how impossible, like the magnitude of impossibility of one person satisfying all of those things, right? One person satisfying all of those prophecies. And then on top of that, that person doing miracles that are documented, that hundreds and thousands of people personally witnessed and verified and at least said or believed to be true. And then on top of that comes everything else. Even if you suspend the supernatural, what are the odds of one person being able to orchestrate all of these things, fulfill all of these things, all the way to their birth line and their birth location and a story, a crazy story about being born of a virgin. And like, so somebody actually figured this out, by the way, a mathematician, 
I believe his name is Peter W. Stoner is what I saw. I hope I'm pronouncing that that name, Stoner. Anyways, that's his name. Personally, I think it would have more credibility if he had a different last name. I'm sorry, I can't help myself but say that. But anyways, I think that's his name. And he's a very, very smart mathematician, apparently. He actually figured this out that the probability, okay, of just eight of these prophecies. Now, I don't know how many I've given you here. I think people there's, say there's over a hundred or hundreds. I don't know. I've given you, I don't know, maybe like a couple dozen here about, you know, healing the blind. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of roughly counting here, probably given you like, I don't know, 15 or 20, just myself here, but you know, there's more, but the probability of just eight of these coming true is so massive. You can't even get your mind around this. Here's what it is. So this is a mathematician figured this out. The chances are one chance. So one out of 100 million billion. (laughs) That's the probability of just eight of these coming true. So even if half of the ones that I told you aren't real, or don't come true. Okay. Let's just say, okay, half of the ones that Rory shared, you know, Rory misunderstood them. Right. And, you know, forget the dozens of other ones that people talk about. And, you know, let's just say that half of these that Rory is pointing to black and white. Okay. Say half of those are wrong. Okay. Just eight, eight of these, eight of these coming true is a chance of one in 100 million billions. Here's how he said this. So if you took this as a number of silver dollars, so if you took 100 million billion silver dollar coins, they would cover the entire state of Texas at a depth of two feet. Okay, so get 100 million billion coins, you know, well, silver dollars, they have these larger coins. They would cover the state of Texas at two feet. And then if on one silver dollar, so on one of these coins, you marked, you know, like a red dot or something like with a Sharpie on the back of it. And you threw it somewhere in the state of Texas, somewhere two feet deep. And then you blindfolded someone and airdropped them in Texas and said, walk around and grab one coin. That one coin would be the one that had been marked. That is the odds of just eight of these prophecies coming true. The ability to predict eight things about a specific person that far in advance of them coming true, you have a better chance of grabbing one coin out of two feet deep worth of coins across the entire state of Texas blindfolded. The mathematician also computed that the probability of fulfilling 48 prophecies, okay, so this is eight prophecies. But if you look at fulfilling 48, of which, you know, I've given half of those here, is one chance in one trillion to the 13th power. Okay. So I feel pretty confident in like however many I've shared here. It's a little bit of a like what counts as a prophecy and what do we count as, you know, Jesus fulfilled it. But even just specific minor details, like somebody just validating minor details about someone's life, if there were 48 of these prophecies, it would be one trillion, trillion, 
Hold on, I gotta do this right. One trillion, 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 trillions. And this, by the way, so you can look at this, I guess this was written in a journal called Science Speaks, published by Moody Press in Chicago in 1969, apparently on page 109. I didn't actually go look for that myself. I found that somewhere else. So what is my personal conclusion? You got to come to your own conclusion about this stuff. And I'm not fully there. I'm not fully sold yet on Jesus totally, but I'm starting to think that maybe there is some rationale and logic behind this whole thing. Although I'm not quite there and I'll explain why. And we'll talk about that in a second. But at some point, you have to come to the place where you go, you know what? It's starting to take more unfounded realism to believe that Jesus was not the Messiah than it does to believe that he was, right? Like at some point I'm having to go, yeah, I know all these prophecies, but no. Yeah, I know thousands of people, you know, say they saw him, but no. Yeah, I know that there's more documented written support of Jesus than any other historical figure, but no. You know, yeah, I know he said he was the son of the son of God, but I just think he was a teacher. I'm sure he lived, but he was just a good guy. No, I know that all of these people died and were tortured but they were probably just, you know, they probably were tricked. They probably didn't believe it. And I know you're talking about this lineage and him being born of certain parents and a certain genealogy, but I just don't know about it, right? Like at some point to discount all of those things, you start having to manufacture a more fake story than the actual story. Like in order to not believe, you're having to make up so much stuff to discredit the things that are pretty black and white factual, then you are to just go, yeah, I guess the dude's the son of God. And I guess he did miracles and I guess he did the supernatural, right? And so we're starting, at least for me, this is where I was like, you know, one in 100 million billion, like we're starting to cross that point. And that's just the prophecies. That's not the miracles. That's not, you know, any type of faith. That's not the resurrection. That's just, Somebody lived that fulfilled eight things that were written about them hundreds of years earlier, right? That's not everything. That's not the whole story. That's just the prophecy part, just the black and white factual part. And so, you know, at some point you go, you know what? I'm starting to think that there's some rationale here. Because here's the other thing. Not only did he fill these prophecies that other people made, but later he predicts his own betrayal. Then he predicts his own death. And then he predicts his own resurrection. And again, even if you don't believe it happened, the fact that a lot of people think it happened and that he clearly predicted it before it happened or people think that it happened is mind-blowing. And I don't know about you, and this ultimately is what it comes down to, which is where we're going next. Where we're going next is just where the rubber meets the road, okay? Because I don't know about you, but for me, if someone comes up to me, okay, forget about prophecies, forget about miracles, forget about corroboration, documentation, historical evidence, archaeology, suspend all of that for a second and just go, yeah, I don't know if I, I get it. If someone walks up to me and says and predicts 
precisely when they are going to die, how they are going to die. And then they tell me that they're going to rise from the dead and then they do it. I'm going with that person, right? Like all this other science, data, evidence, whatever you want to call it that we've been exploring. Like if you table all, if you separate all of that, which is starting to become very hard to just dispel all of that. But let's say you did. Ultimately to me, what it really comes down to is a resurrection, right? Even if all of this other stuff is true or if it's false, the linchpin is a resurrection. If somebody says, you know, I'm going to die, I'm going to die on this day in this way. And then you're going to think I'm going to be dead. And then this many days later, you're going to see me again. And then all of those things happen, including me seeing them die. And then me seeing them after I saw them die. I'm like, all right, I'm sold. I'm in. Well, I don't care about anything else, right? Ultimately is the resurrection. So that's what we're going to look at in the next lesson. Everything up until this point has been, you know, my journey on historical, archaeological, documented evidence, the genealogy, the prophecy, the black and white. But it really comes down to the resurrection. And that's what we're going to look at next, because if this guy rose from the dead, then he fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled his own prediction. He freaked out all of his disciples. He freaks out a whole bunch of other people. But is a resurrection really possible? I mean, isn't it more likely? I mean, so let me just share my skepticism with you as I queue up our next lesson, because the analytical person in me, the logical person says, isn't it more likely that someone just took Jesus's dead body and moved it or that someone took Jesus's dead body and they hit it or they destroyed it? I mean, what real world evidence is there? Is there any evidence of an actual resurrection? Is there any evidence of a man coming to life? Because again, it's sort of like if one thing this guy says is false, then everything he says is false, right? I mean, you can't be the son of God and lie about some things. You have to be, got to be whole and pure and righteous and true on all of it. Like you can't lie about parts of it. And so he said he was going to rise from the dead. So did he do it or not? Like, and ultimately everything else, you know, you go, man, if I don't believe anything else, you prove to me that you died and you came back to life and that you predicted you were going to do it. And then you actually did it. So what evidence is there of, of that, right? What evidence is there of doing this thing that no other human in history has ever accomplished? Coming back from death, coming back from the grave. What evidence, Rory, is there for that, for that piece? Because that is the linchpin part of the Christian faith. And that's what Jesus said he was going to do. So did he really do it? And if you can help me believe that, which is the most impossible of all the impossible things to believe, then maybe there's something to this. So that's what we're going to look at next, because in many ways, the resurrection is the only thing that matters. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus is not who he says he is, which means he would be a deceiver. And therefore, everything else he said has to be discounted about anything else he said. So if there is no resurrection, there is no Jesus, there is no real Christian faith, which means this is not the path to eternal life because Jesus said he is the way. He said he's the only way. He was not 
ambiguous about it. He was clear. He was direct. He was forward. He was unmistakably clear. He is the way to eternal life. And he also said he was going to rise and come back from the dead. So if he did that, maybe I could come around. And if he did not, it doesn't matter. But here's the thing. If there is a resurrection, if there is evidence that what this man, Jesus, said he was going to do, he did. If there is evidence that all of these people not only witnessed miracles and the life of this man, Jesus, but that there were things that happened that proved that he was alive after he was dead. If there are things that we can point to that say the prophecies about this are accurate, then that means there is a savior. That means it has massive eternal implications. If there's not a resurrection, then none of this other stuff really matters. None of it matters. All of it is circumstantial. But if there is a resurrection, then all of this other stuff falls in line and supports it. And most of all, there's a resurrection that points to something that has eternal implications for my life, for my kid's life, and for your life. So was there a resurrection or wasn't there? That's what we're going to look at in the next lesson. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eternal Life, Seven Questions Every Intelligent Skeptic Should Ask About Jesus of Nazareth. As I've mentioned a few times, I'm not a pastor or leader of any religious organization of any kind. But if you are curious to get to know a bit more about me and the professional work that I do as an author, strategist, and speaker, you can head over to RoryVadenBlog.com. There you will get access to lots of free training resources for business people. I co-host a business podcast also with my wife and business partner, AJ, and we have a personal brand strategy firm that we run together. And I also release new free trainings every week on the psychology of growing your influence, all of which you can learn more about at RoryVadenBlog.com. I'll see you next time.